0: Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation with some of the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we've been working for 50 years to protect endangered species and ecosystems. With this podcast, we want to introduce our audience to some of today's key players in conservation and share the amazing work being done around the globe to protect our planet's rich biodiversity. So on today's show we have Michelle Nyehouse, who's the author of the new book "Beloved Beasts: Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction," um, which is a great title and very sort of horribly near and dear to the heart of those of us here at NatureServe. Uh, Michelle is a project editor for the Atlantic and a longtime contributing editor to the High Country News. Um, her reporting has appeared in publications including National Geographic and the New York Times Magazine, and she received the Havley Science Journalism Award from the American Association for the Advancement of Science for her piece titled Crisis in the Caves, which was about white-nose syndrome in bats, which isn't something that we're going to dig into today, but is something that the Natural Heritage Network talks about a lot because the impact on bats has just been devastating. Um, But anyway, Michelle, thank you for being here. It's great to have you on Conservation Conversations.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Sean.
0: Yeah. So a couple of things you know i like to ask people how they got started in their career and what inspired them to follow the path that they're on um and you've done an amazing amount of work uh, educating the public and one of the things you say is that you're a lapsed biologist um but when i read your writing i think well there's not much lapsed there um she's she's doing the biology still so I, i'm sort of curious about that expression but also like what influenced your decision to study biology and then to become more of a science communicator really?
1: (laughs) Well, sometimes I do feel like I'm I'm cheating because I I get to go on uh, field expeditions with the same kind of scientists I used to work with, but instead of working alongside them, I get to say, now tell me the story of what you've learned. Over the last twenty years, <laughs> and uh, I sometimes feel like I, I get to hear the story without having to to put in the the years of uh, dedicated labor. But I uh, I do have a, a undergraduate degree in biology, and then after I graduated from college, I I spent a few years working as a field assistant on wildlife research projects around the Southwest. So I was never a, a proper biologist. Biologist, but I do have a great affection for biology and biologists and um, a great curiosity about why and how they, they do what they do. Uh, but I have always also loved writing. Uh, and when I, when I graduated from college, I, I had the idea which I thought was a kind of crazy idea that I would combine the two. And at the time there were not, Lots of well-known science journalism graduate programs, like there are now. There was no. There were people writing about science, of course, as there have been for centuries. But, but there was no clear career path. But fortunately, I I uh, went to work at High Country News uh, in Colorado, which covers uh, public lands and and uh, resource issues around the the American West, and they, they kindly trained me in journalism. And I was able to start writing about the issues I cared so much about.
0: It's great. And it's so important. Um, you know, as you know, um, I talked to Andrea Wolf a couple of months ago about yeah. her book on von Humboldt. And so she does um, science education. And of course, von Humboldt in many ways was one of the earliest um, science writers, uh, as he attempted to pull everything together. So when I'm I'm so happy that you're out there doing that for us because it is so important and it's one of the biggest challenges and one of the reasons that we have this podcast is to try and you know, translate the work that we do and uh, into something that's understandable for everybody so that we can have a greater impact. Um, and speaking yeah. of that, um, you obviously the title of your book or the subtitle of the book talks about extinction. And as you get towards the conclusion of the book, you're talking about the sixth extinction. And I talk about the sixth extinction a lot, but can you, do you have a succinct way of describing the sixth extinction for the listeners?
1: Well, I can give it a shot. It's the, uh, the idea that we have had five mass extinctions on the planet already, including the one that, that killed the dinosaurs and many scientists, uh believe given the especially given the dramatic declines in numbers or, or abundance of certain species not necessarily the number of the extinctions we're seeing but the declines in actual numbers of individuals they're saying we are we are on the on the brink or we are entering a sixth extinction the difference with this one being that it is primarily caused by human activities And um, you know, I'm curious how you talk about the sixth extinction in your work with your colleagues and with the public, because the thing that concern it's a it's a very memorable idea, and I have no doubt that it's supported by the data. Though it is, I should say, it's a bit of a judgment call: Are we entering the sixth extinction? Or you know that that is a that is a um, a it's not a a black and white. Uh, thing It's it's what some scientists think we are. Some scientists think we're a bit further off. Yeah. I have no doubt that the underlying data is is correct and, and is very concerning. But I worry about it as a communication. Uh, problem, because I think sometimes it comes across as well, if we're in a mass extinction, then what's the point? You know,
0: mm-hmm. this
1: is inevitable. Um, yeah. And I have a hard time sometimes talking with people about the fact well it could very well the sixth extinction could very well be be already happening and yet we can still save many species that we care about
0: we still need to work to reduce the impact of it in some mm-hmm. way um, yeah and it is as as you're suggesting it's a it's a geologic event that is being caused by human activities you know this will mm-hmm. be visible in the fossil record in the mm-hmm. future, um, which is a terrifying idea. We, um, when I talk about the sixth extinction, I talk about it in a lot of the same ways that you're just talking about how it's, you know, comparable or even potentially larger than things that have happened in the past that were natural, um, whether it's an asteroid or volcanism or whatever caused it in the past. Um, but that we have an obligation as the cause of this extinction to do something about it, and. There's this idea of the rights of species uh, that you talk about in the book. And I I say, you know, is it do we have a, a moral obligation to prevent species from going extinct? Is it an aesthetic argument that it's the completeness of the ecosystem that we're protecting? Is it the human health argument that we never know by causing some species to go extinct, how that's going to negatively affect us or, alternatively, where we're going to find a medicine in some species that has gone extinct. And so there's several different, I think, approaches that you can take to making the argument that we have an obligation to try and protect species. Uh, Sometimes at NatureServe we talk about um, the last of the least and the best of the rest and hmm. it's not unlike what you talk about in the book also um about keeping common things common and yeah it's not about like oh there's only 3 of this species left let's see if we can recover it you know we've lost so much genetic diversity at that point and we've lost so much of the work that those species do in the ecosystem at that point that you know Yes, you're saving them, but are you really saving them? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the Natural Heritage Network that we have is that they absolutely work with species of greatest concern and endangered species. But they often are working with common species as well. Um, And, you know, as we know, many of those common species are managed because they're they're game species. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually sort of going back to the, the book, like. The story of the foundations of conservation and the number of uh, early conservationists who are actually um, shooting, (laughs) trapping, and killing enormous numbers of individuals of species, even species that they knew were already endangered, is quite astounding. Um, You know, sort of the the person that you hang the story on, um, Hakadei, is interesting in that regard.
1: Oh, my gosh, Hornaday, Hornaday, yeah, William Hornaday was was full of. Well, the the whole story of conservation of modern conservation is full of ironies. But but Hornaday in (laughs) Hornaday personifies most of them. And yeah, I mean, he was a taxidermist and a trophy hunter uh, who, you know, unlike most of his contemporaries, was really shocked and, and appalled by the decline of the plains bison and 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 very especially unusually was determined to stop it was determined to protect the the bison but his very paradoxical reaction was to rush out to montana and shoot several dozen <laughs> of the last remaining bison because in the you know in his moral universe and in in the moral universe of the time he he believed that if he was able to build this dramatic diorama of of the majestic bison on the plains and and put it in the Smithsonian, that millions of people would see it and they would also be moved to protect the bison. And he may have been to some extent correct uh, that what the the display he built was a huge sensation. And I think it it cemented the the majesty of the bison in many people's minds who who otherwise never would have seen anything close to a living bison.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it does seem that um, the display did actually have some effect, especially when you think about the people that he interacted with, um, who are, you know, threaded throughout the story of conserv- the modern conservation movement.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, but it is it is shocking even later in. in- Later in the conservation movement, there are plenty of ornithologists who who loved birds and loved them so much <laughs> that they could not resist <laughs> shooting many more than they should have. And uh, I, I don't think we have evidence that that any single ornithologist actually drove a species extinct, but but. Some of them came dangerously close. Uh, Fortunately, we have all kinds of fancy uh, lenses and optics that allow us to see uh, species up close and and satisfy that urge. But uh, yeah, as as I say in the book, the conservation is full of people who did the right things for the wrong reasons and the wrong things for the right reasons.
0: Mm -hmm. And that you you mentioned the moral universe of the time and then Right things for wrong reasons Um, and just briefly wanted to touch on this topic that's coming up a lot these days um, as we think about social justice. And that is uh, the names of some of the species, both common names and the scientific names. Uh, The one that um, actually came up relatively recently when I was on a birding trip was uh, people were talking about the long tailed duck, which used to be called the old squaw. uh, The name was changed because it was an an offensive name, Um, and there are plenty of other examples where uh, inappropriate names are used um, or people are referenced in Mm -hmm. the name of a a species. Um, You know, one that (laughs) there's no there's no issue with this one right now, uh, and I don't think there ever will be. But there's a species out there that's named after one of our uh, former employees. Are you kidding? Heinz ground plum and. Uh uh, Milo Pine is a fantastic guy, and he Mm -hmm. described the species and all of this. Um, And so, but there's plenty of other examples of things named after individuals where we worry about continuing to use that. Um, And I just curious about your, because you've, you've gone back and you've looked at people in their time and then tried to bring that story forward to today in a much more sort of modern way of looking at things like with these conservancies in Africa. Um, mm-hmm. How do you how do you think about this now? That issue?
1: Yeah, the uh, the the naming issue is very interesting to me because it's it it. Actually, it may sound like a sort of performative thing, or you know, window dressing. Um, we're just we're just changing things on the surface, but it actually goes quite deep into the the power structures within science. Because who gets to quote unquote discover a species, who gets to name it, is you know is is a long running uh, argument, historical issue in in uh, in science. And um, I should be clear. The discussions we're having now are mostly about changing the common names of species so changing Mm -hmm. how people communicate about them every day. But there's also you know issues with who gets to give a a species a scientific name and who gets to um, who gets to be be honored with a with a species with a the scientific name of a species and. you know, it 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 does remind me very much of the the public discussion we're having about monuments and who gets to have a physical monument to them. And um, there's a, a a columnist for the Guardian who wrote a a piece recently about how well we should we should just really move on from this idea of building statues to people, which was a provocation. I don't expect we're going to stop building statues to people, but he was really questioning the whole idea of like why do we honor individuals in this way. Is it really a good idea of remembering even perfect people? And there are very few perfect people in the universe. So, you know, it's, it's really, um, may, perhaps we should rethink how we are remembering people in general. Perhaps we shouldn't be naming entire species after a single individual and hoping that, uh, that, later generations don't discover deep flaws in that individual that we that we uh, didn't know about at the time or didn't recognize at the time Um, Mm -hmm. so i think it's a very worthwhile discussion and and again it has a lot to do with power structures in science and then and who's involved in in science who gets to participate in those power structures
0: yeah it's it's so great that we're having the conversation Um, it's too bad we didn't start it sooner and the whole Linnaean system and who gets to name things is actually it's both complex sociologically, but it's also very complex just in terms of straight science. And it's one of the big challenges that nature faces all the time. Oh, I can
1: only imagine. Yeah. Different
0: states will call the same species different things, even in the scientific name, never mind the common name, and trying to keep it all straight. And the implications for conservation are significant. If one state says two or three species are actually just one species, that species may not be, of concern, but if it's three separate species, you might have three species that are of concern.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so uh the actual science behind what things are called and how they're grouped is also really important, but it's a totally different issue. <laughs> it's less about social justice. Yes. More about less, less about less social. Opinion.
1: Yeah. Less about social justice, but full of human decisions, right? I right. I I started my book with a chapter about Linnaeus and his his personal story but also his the system he developed that we still use for for giving species scientific names because i wanted people to understand that this thing we call species this this unit <laughs> that is in many ways the currency of conservation the fundamental unit of conservation as eo wilson put it is there is a reality to it but it's also the boundaries of it are are constructed by humans mm-hmm. and um and that there's a lot of uncertainty in it. I think sometimes people think, oh, well, the classification for species is is a scientific thing. It's cut and dried. You, you know, you recognize the species, you name it. And as you're saying, you know, there's all kinds of, of judgment calls that get made in there about what a species is. Is it is this a different species? Is it a subspecies? And and sometimes the decisions people make don't match up and cause a lot of confusion.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: and, and make a huge difference to conservation.
0: I really enjoyed the chapter on Linnaeus because you sort of learn about him in Biology 101, but you don't mm-hmm. learn about him, right? You learn about this system. And uh, actually, humanizing him a little bit was, I, th- I thought, really interesting.
1: He's a fascinating guy. I mean, yeah. who would take on a project like that? You know, even even hundreds of years ago, when we didn't know there were as many species as there were today, we still we knew enough to know that it was an overwhelming task. But Linnaeus had the ego and the ambition <laughs> to uh, to take on this this challenge of naming every species on Earth.
0: Well, you also talk in the book about um, doing a search, uh, I think, in a database on the word biodiversity and biological diversity, and how few references there were or none. In the 1982, compared to now, well, imagine having to do that research before there were computers and it was all on paper. And then in Linnaeus's day, you had to go the to place; you couldn't just mm-hmm. call somebody or have somebody email you a bunch of records, never mind a database. And so, yeah, it's incredibly daunting to imagine that he had the, the the hubris to do to say that he could do it. But it's great that he got it started for us.
1: And he didn't like to travel. <laughs> I mean, I love that, you know, he was a Swedish biologist. Who, he liked to be outside, but he didn't really, he traveled some in his youth, but he basically liked to stay at home. And so later in life, he sent out his his adventurous students, you know, to to what we called the new world then. And and they would bring back specimens and then he would decide whether or not they were new species.
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: this- so, you know another thing that you've written about a bit is um climate change and of course this all is part and parcel um the climate change and the effect on the sixth extinction and on species and ecosystems um so i just was thinking about climate change in general and how it lays on top of this because it wasn't really um i mean we knew about it you know in the in the 70s and the 80s but I don't think people thought it was going to be quite what it is now. um, That we're actually observing the impacts um, and the predictions that we're uh, seeing right now. I just wonder what you think about with the as you look at the history of conservation. If you've thought at all about the history of like how climate change overlies on that and the the dynamics of the science and the and the policy of climate change, is that something you've Doug, dug into it all.
1: Yeah, very much so. And I mean, one of my I had a lot of motivations for writing this book, but one of my motivations was a sense that there is an enormous interest uh, as well. There should be among younger generations in climate activism. Uh, but conservation has it doesn't get as much of a atten- as much attention from youth activists as climate change, and I mean there are very understandable reasons for that. Uh, but I I hoped to show that conservation is is still. In incredibly important and and so intertwined with climate, uh, and I I hope to show that that sometimes I think there's a sense among young climate activists that the two things are 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 in conflict that that conservation in fact especially can sometimes conflict with social justice which it certainly has in the past but I think there are ways in which it can promote social justice and so I hope to show that there are ways that we can overcome that history and then and also serve climate stabilization serve social justice and serve conservation um i was really heartened by the the ipbs report that came out uh in early june uh pointing out that that conservation and climate stabilization do have to work together and and emphasizing that there are some climate solutions that don't work particularly well for conservation, and that we should be careful to avoid those. We should be careful to choose solutions that promote them both, and that they're out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I think I think it's possible to do both, but I think it's also possible to um, to work at cross, cross purposes. So, I think it's it's very important for us to choose our path carefully.
0: Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, so, I wanted to. Um, I wanted to ask you a sort of personal philosophical question, and that is, you you have this great opportunity to sort of pick big projects to work on and to to write about them, and you just described sort of some personal uh, motivation for doing that. I'm curious, sort of on the grand scheme, and the big arc, you know, if you're if you're putting the the period on the last page of <laughs> the, the last book that you'll ever write <laughs> which will be sometime long in the future um, what will you, what what will you hope that body of work will encompass and and like what will the legacy of that body of work be
1: mm. um well, that's good. It's good to think about. It's not something I think about every day, but I do think about <laughs> it, would be it. Paralyzing
0: if you did. <laughs>
1: it would be paralyzing to think about it every day. But but when you uh, you uh, writing books, I think does give you a sense that that there there is an, an object that will live on after you. So <laughs> you uh, <laughs> it it does come to mind sometimes. Um, I I've always really loved the process that that we were talking about earlier of of translating. Um, translating complicated things into plain language. Um, and I I I especially love uh translating complicated things not not to as in my one of my least favorite phrases, not to quote unquote dumb them down, but to um to uh introduce them to people who are extremely intelligent and curious, but just not specialists um so i i like the idea or i like that my goal i think is to communicate the complexity of of some of these problems and some of these solutions that people like you are working on um but do it in a way that's digestible to someone who just doesn't think about these issues every day they they're thinking about other <laughs> perhaps equally complicated issues but they're not thinking about these particular issues so i think my overall Goal it is to communicate complexity to a broad audience. I mean, conservation on so many so many levels is about protecting complexity, pro- protecting the complexity of our ecosystems and and our our human societies. And if I can communicate the importance of that, um, then I'll have I'll I'll have um, accomplished something I'm proud of.
0: That's that's fantastic, and it's you're absolutely right. Um, you know accounting is very complicated and hard to understand and you need somebody to translate it for you and the same is true with a lot of these different science topics and uh, yeah it's not that people aren't smart enough to get it it's just not their jargon and their their experience but having someone like you out there who is doing that translation is incredibly valuable because we really do need everybody working on these problems of things like conservation and climate change and people engaged and and really understanding the science. Because in my view, you don't get to say, I believe in climate change. That's sort of like saying, I believe in gravity. Physics and chemistry tell us that this is happening and that this is real. And you can debate how it's going to actually affect the world and what it's going to do to ecosystems and things like that. But the fact that it is happening is not something that's a question. And so having people understand that because they can finally understand the science because somebody who does a great job of explaining it like you out there it's fantastic thank you yeah
1: and i that well thank you and and i i mean i think that what you're doing is you are helping tell a more complex story about conservation um by emphasizing the protection of ecosystems and showing how species fit into those ecosystems because i think for too long uh, conservation organizations have leaned on the, you know, leaned on their flagship species and said, okay, well, give give your twenty five dollars to protect the panda. And you know, well, well, professional conservationists know very well that it's about what much more than that. But I think there's sometimes a fear of, oh, well, we can't make it too complicated because we'll confuse people, or will alienate people, or or people won't be as attached to. You know they won't be as attached to the hellbender as they are to the the giant panda. You know, uh, and I love the hellbender. But, um, and uh, but I think so. Part of the challenge is you know, unfortunately, though we might love to do so, we can't just open people's heads and pour information in. We have to think of ways that 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 not only are make sense, but that people will truly connect with on an emotional level. So, I think part of my challenge as a as a writer and and your challenge as a conservationist is is uh, finding the stories about ecosystems and about less you know traditionally charismatic species that that speak to people in some mm-hmm. on some level and uh, you know help them not only understand the complexity but but really want to understand the complexity and and want to protect that complexity. Yeah.
0: I, I appreciate you saying that and in the sort of shameless self-promotion category, <laughs> uh, the Van Humboldt tour that is underway right now. Yeah,
1: Van Humboldt.
0: Has really done, uh, has really been in a lot of ways about ecosystems. Um, spent several days on the trip in um, longleaf pine ecosystems and it was less about the pine trees or the red cockaded woodpeckers. It was about this ecosystem and how it used to have this huge extent and now it's reduced and in, uh, Tennessee, we went to the Cedar Glades, which is this very specific habitat type. And yes, there are endangered species on it, but it's because of the habitat and the ecosystem. And the same was true in uh, West Virginia, where we went to an area that was about the habitat types that were being protected and less about the individual species. And it really you're right. It's really, really important because in the complexity of how all of this fits together and then protecting the ecosystem so that the species are in their natural habitat. Um, It's it's one of the great things that uh, nature serve with the vegetation classification system that we have that's incorporated into some federal rulemaking and things. Um, It's a it's it's a great thing that we have access to here uh, for conservation and use.
1: Yeah, and it. it, As you were talking about earlier, when we were talking about the sixth extinction, there are so many people's reasons for conservation are also complex, and I think mm-hmm. you know the information that you provide allows people to to find those on their own. I mean, I, there's a long running debate in conservation biology about why, why do we protect species? Is it because they're they have intrinsic value, or is it because they have instrumental value, or they, you know are we protecting nature? For itself or or for humans. And I always am confused and frustrated by that debate because I think, well, both. Right. You know, (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) and I mean, we're we're part because we're part. It's complex because we're part of what we're trying to protect. And and so we can I think we can have many motivations we can have you know and we can have many motivations for protecting different species and different ecosystems all of them quite valid some of them self-interested some of them not self-interested um and some more pressing than others but but uh we can there are there are many ways for us to relate to and be concerned about these different these different places and and it's fine if if they vary (laughs) you know and if if we have loyalties to one over the other that that's that's part of the complexity of conservation
0: multiple paths into it whether you're you know ducks unlimited or trout unlimited or you're um with a more traditional conservation organization um if your interest is you know bird watching or anything um i think uh, a lot of people who go out into nature to uh quote unquote, hunt and fish are actually going out to meditate and they just are afraid to say they're going out to meditate. <laughs> they bring a fishing pole with them. <laughs> they may never actually cast a line. But.
1: I would not be surprised. And I would, I mean, friends of mine who have grown up hunting have talked about how, you know, it was really, I'm not a hunter myself, but I have known plenty of people who, who do it and, and have, have done it growing up. And, and it really was about family time." or yeah. time time in the woods and and you read about Aldo Leopold who was perhaps one of the most famous hunter conservationists and and his dad who was not had no scientific background who just happened to have a a, a strong ethical belief that that people should limit the amount of the number of ducks they shot in a day mm-hmm. sometimes made a point of going out in the woods without his gun and taking his kids along just to show them that that wasn't really the point
0: right?
1: of what they were doing. Yeah, well,
0: That's wonderful. Well, on that note, I think we will um, wrap up today. Although I think I could probably talk to you for the rest of the day, if you would tolerate me.
1: Yeah. Um, likewise. It's fun to chat about um, what you're doing on the ground. It's uh, it, it does remind me of, of Aldo Leopold did a, did a game survey early in his career that was, That you know, at a time when people didn't know what was out there, and so he did much what you're doing, you know, traveling around the Midwest, talking to people, asking them what they were seeing, and and it was one of the first uh, one of the first real records that we had of of what was at what 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 was at risk. So. and and what it gave people an idea of what needed to be done to protect habitat, which people hadn't been thinking about until then, until the 1930s. So you're carrying on a fine tradition.
0: Well, um, with that compliment in mind, um, (laughs) for for me and for NatureServe and for our entire Natural Heritage Network, I want to thank you for for that and thank you for all that you do to uh, get people inspired and to make a difference in the world. So thank you, Michelle and my house for All that you do and for being on conservation conversations.
1: Thanks so much, Sean, and safe travels. Thanks. Best wishes to Von Humboldt. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.